ay 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 ay
absolute pleasure to be sitting opposite you, Idris. Um, Idris Ackermore. Yes. Pyramids. Saw you perform last week. Remarkable show. Thank you. And that comes across as well on the recording. You know, it's a very interesting mix of, uh, of, of the, the different instruments we played live, you know, because we got the beautiful uh, recording of each of those little instruments as well as the main, the main compositions that we have. But we have all these segues of these incredible, small, uh, 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 otherworldly sounding music, different sounds that I'm sure the DJ is going to have a ball with. Yeah. You know, because there's a lot of, lot of beautiful, interesting sounds on the, on the, on the album. The only disappointing thing today for me is that I couldn't find, because I've just moved out from my studio and I couldn't find the CD which came out in Japan, the Idris oh, right. Akamor. It's a triple CD, it's right? It's a double CD. Double, double CD. Yeah, intro, the uh, music of Idris Akamor, 1971 and 2004, yeah. Yeah, so I've yeah. got that somewhere hidden somewhere there, but I'm going to have to pull that out for this program because obviously there's some great stuff on there which which isn't on these three albums. That's right. Okay, so let's go back to 1970, what was it, 1974? 73 for the Lalibella, mm-hmm. 74 for King of Kings, and 76 for Burst Speed Merging. So you've made this record, you made it in Germany. Yes, we recorded it at Faust Studios in a very small town in Scheer, Germany. So uh, we recorded it in three days, and it, we have almost over 90 minutes worth of music that we've recorded. So there's a, a lot there, and... and we're very happy with it. Engineer? Engineer was the engineer from Fall Studios. His name is Andy, uh, who, who's, who's a typical engineer at the studios. But Kenneth Nash, you're familiar with Kenneth. And, all right, so Kenneth, you know, Kenneth has his own studio in Berkeley, in uh, Oakland. And wonderful studio there. And, you know, he's a, and he's also a mix master of, of, mm. of mixes and stuff. Mm. So we were very, happy, very fortunate to have him included in the band. Mm. But his ears are like, Huge, mm. and since he knows, you know, since he plays the music and knows the music intimately, me and him are mix have been would do the final mix. We've got to do something with it. It's, it's it's the first recording of the pyramids in over thirty five years, you know, and it's all new. It's all none. All of us, um, you know, I haven't even published it yet because I want to, you know, just leave that open for a minute. But um, it's all brand new.
Obviously, I've done this book recently, which came out a couple of years ago, which features the three sleeves of your three yeah. albums that came out in the originals. mid-70s. Originals. Yeah, originals. Yes. Yeah, big fan. Yes. I've had those for a while, before mm. they became particularly expensive. <laughs> I think now... Have you got any? Only a very few. I might have um, maybe two copies of Lalibella, maybe three of King of Kings, and then maybe about three or four of Burst Speed Merging. So mine, mine are dear too, very yeah, dear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let's just take it back to that time. I want to just feel what you'd done up until that stage. What made you create the pyramids? What was going on around that time? What was the feeling in town? Well, we were, uh, we're at a very revolutionary school, Antioch College, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, in a very small place in the mid part of Ohio, not too far from Cincinnati and Dayton. And uh, we were all stu- <clears throat> students there. And right around that time, uh, Cecil Taylor, the great jazz pianist, uh, had a huge grant from the Ford Foundation. A professor at Antioch, John Ronsheim, was Cecil's uh, roommate at the Boston Conservatory. And um, so John Ronsheim wrote this huge grant. It was like maybe half a million, million dollars then for Cecil to bring his whole ensemble to Antioch College for like two years. And he brought everybody. He brought Jimmy Lyons, Andrew Surreal. He brought a dancer uh, and a poet, all to Antioch to be in residence. Around that time, um, we also the pyramids was had not formed yet, but we were students, so we began to play with Cecil in his what he called the Cecil Taylor Black Music Ensemble. So he had like maybe thirty students and also other musicians that kind of um, that followed him to Antioch. Uh, musicians like Jimmy Moondock, uh, other that have gone on to become uh, some names in the music that they're making. But we were all students at the time. And so we all played with Cecil for about maybe a year. 
And then um, we had the opportunity to go on a um, Antioch education abroad. And the idea was that we would create our own project. I decided to create our own project. And that project was to go to Europe, form a band, a jazz band, and work. That was our project. <laughs> so Antioch said, all you have to do is for academic credit, number one, is to um, go to Besançon, uh, France, take five weeks of intensive French, and everything else would be your own plans. So um, that's what we did. Myself, uh, Kimathi Asante, the bass player, and Margot Simmons. At that time, we were uh, um, college sweethearts. She played flute. And uh, so we decided to just leave America for a year. And we started out in Besançon. We went to Besançon, and we, we all lived in three separate dorms. And, the, and they kind of formed a, a triangle. So um, we got the name of the Pyramids in Besançon. We called ourselves the Pyramids, and we performed our first gig in Besançon as a trio. Then we went to Paris, and we met up with uh, drummer Donald Robinson, a young drummer. He was like 18 or 19 at the time. We were all like 18 or 19 years old, you know. And then we, just, we had all this French, but we didn't use it in Paris. We went right to Amsterdam because we heard, well, you should go to Amsterdam. You, should, you know, that, that's the place to go. So we got to Amsterdam in the fall of 1972, and we started to work around Amsterdam as the Pyramids. About two or three weeks later, Donald joined us. We began as a trio, and then Donald joined us. We became a quartet. And around that time, you know, Amsterdam was just, was just was flourishing with all these uh, government-supported uh, performance spaces, like the Cosmos, the Octopus, uh, the Paradiso, you know, all these. And, and, and we just got booked. We said, we're the pyramids, you know, <laughs> book us, you know, <laughs> and they would book us. And we, had, we would do these incredible concerts. And um, all of those concerts mostly were recorded, which I've still kept to this day from 1972. And we also met we met the great poet Ted Jones, who took us under his wing. And we also even did some concerts with with the pyramids and Ted Jones reading his poetry. So we we, we worked around Amster, uh, around Holland. We did VPRO radio. A live session there. We did um, Rotterdam. We worked all over Holland. And after about three months, that's when we decided, because part of the Antioch project was to go to Africa for nine months. So, and it was all our own plans. We knew nobody in Africa. We knew nothing. So we just, all they, Antioch gave us was a round-the-world ticket. So we could stop anywhere in a circle. And so, and, and, and they had a small little stipend that we could survive on. So we went from, once we finished what we were doing in Holland, we went down to uh, Malaga, Spain. And then from Malaga, we crossed to Tangier, Morocco. From Tangier, we stayed about two weeks in Tangier and Rabat. Then we went to Dakar, Senegal for a few days. And we stopped in Accra, where we stayed for uh, almost three months. And we studied, we met up in Accra. With, uh, at that time, Hey Jolie Sound was performing a little bit, so we, we did kind of meet them. But we were mostly studying with uh, the indigenous musicians uh, around Accra. But then towards the end of our, our stay there, Margot and myself took this spiritual journey where we went way up into the north of Ghana to like uh, Tamale and Bogotanga, where we got just away away from everything. And that's where we began to study with the uh, court drummers, the king's drummers of Tamale and the uh, king's drummers of Bogotanga. And we made these field recordings because one of the things that was, was part of the project was I was supposed to come back and do a senior 
presentation and they and Anya gave us this really nice record a uh, Sony recorder so I was recording everything I was I was going you know I recorded the music with the King's drummers and me playing alto and and uh, Margo playing flute and uh, it just uh, we stayed up up in northern Ghana for about a week and we played in Bogotanga at a ceremony called the uh, the second burial of a Fra Fra King because the fra- people in Bogotanga are like very traditional as opposed to Tamale it's very Islamic but Bogotanga is like, you know, the whole concept of juju and, uh, 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 you know, the ancestral medicine and all of that was up in Bogotanga. So one night they had a, this, this ceremony where it started like, like midnight and they're just playing these drums of, on this burial ceremony. And they just they just allowed us to bring out our instruments and play with them, you know. Then from Ghana, we jumped across to, to Kenya, where we stayed there for three months. And all the time we were collecting instruments and cost, you know, material and costumes and studying with the musicians. We got to Kenya and we so happened to bump into this young Kenyan who was an entrepreneur who had a coffee, who was living on a coffee estate. And what he did was on the weekend, he would bring tourists out to his coffee estate and then he would bring traditional uh, Kikuyu and Maasai performers to perform for the tourists. But they would perform these amazing dances and, and, and songs and traditional food. And we were there living in, uh, on his, uh, this, you know, 12-room, you know, estate. <laughs> With the, me, Kimathi, and Margot. And all the time recording the music. We recorded these, these kikuyu. They had this uh, ceremony where there would maybe be 20 or 30 of them. And they would tie their, these cans to their legs. And they would, like, march in, like, almost military precision. And play this, the guy in the front would play this trumpet. And they sounded like thunder. You know, and the guy would, you know, like this thunder and, and singing. So we had like two or three months in Kenya. Then we went, then we departed. Kimati went to Egypt, and me and Margo went to Ethiopia. 
And that's where, because Cecil, when we were taking classes, not only was Cecil doing the uh, ensemble, but Cecil would teach. He called it the music and the black aesthetic. And that was the first time I heard of the, the, the place Lollibella. Cecil talked about Lollibella as being a very holy place, a very spiritual place. So I said, well, let's, we, can, we wanted to find out where Lollibella is. We hadn't heard of it, about it until we um, taken the class with Cecil. So we got to Ethiopia, and they take you on this historic tour where you go to like Aksum and, and you go to um, uh, Lalibela on this like twin, in, twin, twin engine plane, you know, and you land on this dirt, dirt kind of runway. And we were in Lalibela. And in the 12th century, King Lalibela had, had, had made these, carved these churches out of solid rock. About 12, 13, there's one, there's 13, one is supposedly lost, but there's 12 that you can go and visit. And they're carved out of one solid piece of rock. And it's very remote. So we went to Lalibela and uh, visited the churches, recorded some of the priests inside the churches playing this amazing drum and chant music, as well as some of the Masinko playing, some of the Masinko playing that they, that they, that they do. Uh, we went to Lalibela, we went to Aksum and Gondar. Then we went back to Rome and New York, back to Yellow Springs, Ohio.
spiritual journey. <laughs> you realize you were blessed. Yes. Yes. It was a it was a life trans it was a transforming experience. It really was. These things don't happen anymore, do they? Are there are there are there wealthy people who just want to support the arts in the same way <laughs> not jazz right right no I, I can't imagine it i can't imagine it happening the way that it, it did as, as well you know it was relative it was safe to do these travels because between accra and and uh nairobi kenya kenya we stopped in uganda at kampala on our way to kenya and that was right before that was right when Idi Amin had came to power and now, even if you can realize that he he came to power, and at, at that particular moment he was thought of as being a hero, you know, uh, there was a kind of like elation at at him coming to power, you know. But at the same time, there was some very serious kind of racist things going on with him trying to kick out all the Indian uh, store owners and everything, even around that same time. But you know, it, you know, we we happened to be able to be there and be safe. Yeah. You know, so it was a it was a very um it was a blessed time. Was it a time when a lot of musicians from the world, from America, jazz musicians particularly, felt obliged to go to Africa to a degree like Don Cherry or Lester Bowie, Steve Reed went over there, quite a few Royers went over there. There was that feeling of going back to Africa. Did it was that part of, of the did you wanna were you influenced by that as well? I think at that time we we were really pioneers. We hadn't heard of anybody going back to Africa in seventy two ourselves, not in seventy two. And I think some of some of what happened was like I know Lester went back maybe af- maybe around that same time. I know he went back and he was over there with Fela, you know. Um, but it wasn't kind of generally known, you know, in that early part of the early seventies. So what do they think of you? What do they make of these black Americans? The African the African musicians? A welcome with open arms. Uh, actually, what I, I did, I, I mean, even after I left, I began almost a, a, a correspondence with many of them. Like I, there was this, uh, one of the master drummers in Tamale, his name is Alassane Ibrahim. Uh, we got into like a little entrepreneur thing because we were, we were doing like, you know, um, he was really into snakeskins. He was a hunter. So for a while, he was sending me snakeskins and I was like, you know, sending him money for this and talking drums. He was sending me a lot of the talking drums that they had made. And I was, you know, uh, uh, selling some of the talking drums to people like the art ensemble and other musicians and sending him back the money. So that happened for a little while until it kind of tapered off.
Now, know. before the Cecil Taylor connection, just as you were studying in Ohio, did you? Um, what was the jazz that you'd been brought up on? What had been your influences before? Because I mean, Cecil Taylor is definitely one end of 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 the of the jazz spectrum, isn't it? Yes. Were, were you yes. coming from the Coltrane school? Had you come from a more bebop thing, or? Well, actually, it was very interesting because I played. I've been playing music all my life. When I was, uh, I started playing music when I was like seven or eight years old, and I switched around a lot of instruments. I started on trumpet, switched to violin, and I played piano for quite a while. But around that, around the time I went into high school, I kind of, I had kind of stopped because um, I was playing basketball. I was in a basketball and wanted to play basketball, and, and and I wasn't around a lot of musicians. Although there was a piano in my household, my mother played for her students as she taught it in, in grammar school, but no jazz musicians at all on my block, you know. So um, there was no really. Not, even though I was playing a lot of classical music, there was no influences that were saying, okay, well, now you can, you can apply this classical music to jazz or R&B or whatever. So I kind of stopped for four years, and I was under the impression that I was going to play some basketball, you know. And actually, in reality, I was pretty good at, at, at my, the school I went to. So my first college year, I went to play basketball at a small middle, Midwestern college called Coe College. But this was in like 68, 69. But... After the first semester at Cole, I knew that was not my calling. I brought my saxophone with me to Cole, even though I had been laying off for about four years. And I said, uh, I, a friend of mine was putting together a funk band up at, at Cole College. And I, I told him, look, I'm, I'm kind of done with basketball, Albert. You know, I just, you know, I'm just, I'm just done with Cole College. I want to get out of here. <laughs> I had to get out of this place. You know, it wasn't that. And I, I, I learned about Antioch College and I was excited about their programs. So I applied to transfer to Antioch, and at the same time, I began to pick up my saxophone again and played in this little funk band for like maybe a, a quarter. But then I went back to Chicago, where I was waiting to hear whether I got into Antioch. But while I was in Chicago, I found a master teacher. His name was Clifford King, and he was one of the foremost saxophone instructors for all the AAC, AACM guys, you know, all the art ensemble guys, all the saxophone players from them. He had really trained a lot of them. So I... Took up, uh, I got an alto, got a new alto, and I just started my basics, continuing my basics with him. So I studied with him for almost two years, even after I went to Antioch, because I came back to Chicago on what they call a co-op, which is Antioch, you study half a year, and then they put you in a job for half a year in a city someplace, you know. But even then, I was studying for two years with uh, um, uh, Clifford really getting my fundamentals together, but not really playing changes or, or mainstream or anything. So he gave me the ability to be very uh, technically proficient. But then once I got back to Antioch, I almost immediately began to compose. I immediately began to uh, make my own groups. But one of my most, most influential, uh, um, uh, one of my main influences was I had a co-op out in Los Angeles one quarter. And I met the great uh, alto player who was Albert Eiler's alto player, Charles Tyler. But Charles was an amazing alto player from Cleveland. And I just happened to meet Charles in L.A. He was one of his excursions when he was going around. He was in L.A. And Charles took me under his wing, you know. And I played with Charles uh, for about six months. Just he was teaching me things, you know, playing with him with his group in and out. And uh, so... I, I was kind of educated on the out stuff. You know, I was not educated on the tunes. I was not playing tunes. I had to, I had the technical uh, proficiency, but I was not playing main, I was not playing tunes. So, but he taught me a, a lot. By the time I got back to Antioch, 
I formed this group called The Collective. And The Collective, on, on my two-CD uh, EM release, Japan, Japanese release, uh, The Shepherd's Tune was one of my first... Uh, the Collective began to perform together in 1971. And that was the, the, the pre-pyramids was The Collective. And it was myself, Margo, and this fabulous piano player named Lester Nibs. And two guys who were in the Air Force... Uh, who played French horn, one played French horn, and the other was a, a flautist as well. So, uh, no, drummer, was a drummer.
So the collective was before the pyramids. By that time, Cecil was getting ready to come to Antioch. It was all set up. So I was in the music department at Antioch and John Ronshine was my teacher, was my professor. And he said, "Okay, Idris, I want you to prepare the way for Cecil to come. I want you to let the students know and all that. And I was so I got so excited. I was making instruments. I was I was building instruments in the theater department, all of that. And wouldn't you know it, I had a life changing accident right before Cecil was getting ready to come. I was building this instrument in the theater department on this very huge, like a saw. And I had this accident and it cut my left index finger off. I mean, it just knocked me down. It it was it was one of those moments where I thought my life was finished. You know, it was it was so happened that it was a student that heard basically my screams as I ran out in horror, you know, from this accident who got me to a, 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 the hospital infirmary and then to the hospital where they had to amputate my, my left index finger as well as, as my middle finger was partly paralyzed. But what the doctor, the doctor who was operating on me knew I was a musician, I knew played saxophone. So there was one way that this finger could have been either extended straight out, but he created it in such a way in his surgery that it was curved in a playing position. Incredible. It's a very, I like to, I, I tell that story because it's for me, it's, it's inspiring and a lot of people have, have been inspired by it because I thought my life, I thought my life and my performing was over, you know, and so I had a long recovery period. I had almost six months where I couldn't do, couldn't do anything. And I began to play a little trumpet because Caesar was just coming, you know, and Caesar was I, I, like, so I'm, you know, that whole part. And I remember coming to Caesar, I said, Caesar, man, I said, I really want to play in this ensemble. And I'm, I'm just picking up ch- trumpet. You know, I really want to play. So Cecil said, uh, Idris, if you can play one note, come and join the ensemble. You know, so, I mean, I was just fuddling around. I was just beginning to, to play a little bit trumpet because I never knew. I didn't know that I was going to be able to play saxophone again. I just didn't know. But I wanted to be around music. I wanted to still be a part of it. And then the most amazing thing that happened was Cecil brought this amazing Percussionist. His name is Clifford Sykes. Uh, he brought Clifford was playing timpani and all these percussions to play with, with Cecil's main body of, of his band. Would you know that Clifford Sykes had a similar accident and had his right index finger amputated? <laughs> and, and, and so Clifford, I was talking to Clifford and I said, man. I don't believe this, Clifford. If you meet Clifford today, he would tell you we're like brothers like that. You know, we're brothers like that. And Clifford said, Idris, man, he said, just shift everything down and deal with your palm of your hand, you know. And that that just like, bam, it turned on a, a, a light bulb. And I got an alto and had it altered where actually I ended up playing my B and my B flat with the palm of my hand. You know, and so everything's been shifted down, and so all the rest is, uh, you know, history. Amazing story. Thank God you gave up basketball. <laughs> Thank God there's no future, <laughs> no future basketball for me. Um, so, on your travels around um, the world, you never got to see the pyramids then? No, I haven't. P- Kimathi did. 
He went back and he like took the picture on top. So that's definitely one of my one of what they call put it on a bucket list. That's like I, I gotta go and and go and see the pyramids. Yeah. Sun Ra traveled to the pyramids. He did an album at the pyramids. Were you a fan of Sun Ra? Was he uh, a part of the world that you were living within, or was it separate? Big fan. Big. My my my, my main influences in many ways. After I once I got in at at Antioch and started really listening was, of course, Train. You know, everything the train did, you know. Um, and then, of course, Art Ensemble Chicago, because those are my, my the guys that I know from Chicago. Moye and me have been, always been very close with Fumadu, you know, the drummer. And Lester and every, all of them, I've always been very close to the guys, you know. Uh, of course, uh, Sun Ra. I'd always go see a Sun Ra concert. I'd always see the Art Ensemble. And Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh is, Pharaoh is, uh, I love, I've always loved Pharaoh's music, Don Cherry, you know, Ornette, you know, but, but, but more particularly Pharaoh, Art Ensemble, Sun Ra, you know, um, uh, Charles, Tyler, um, Albert, I love Albert's, I've always loved Albert's, you know, playing and, and, you know, and so that is, those are the, uh, the, the musicians I've always, Eric, Eric Dolphy, I love, love, really love Eric's. Music and I, I feel very drawn stylistically in some ways. You know, I listen to a lot to him. I love his the leaps, his the 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 the, the uh, vocal quality of his of his playing. You know, those things all have really really influenced me. Thank you. 
mean, when I listen back to the pyramids, I hear some early earth, wind and fire in there as well. I hear some sun rock, but I hear a lot of the free stuff that you're talking about. Earth, wind and fire, that Chicago sound, Charles Stepney, the Rotary Connections. Was that part of what you were listening to as well? Not so much myself, but I think other people in the band were. Like the Kimathi, of course, came out of that real kind of rock, rock, uh, rock, because he was with a brute force. You familiar with the brute force? Yes, he did. They did that because uh, what? See, when I got to Antioch, the brute force was all from Central State, and Central State was the black college. It was right around the down the road from Antioch, and the brute force kind of came out of Central State. And Stanley Strickland, the t- tenor player, uh, Sidney Smart, the drummer, uh, and Sonny Schrock had played with with, with brute force. And Kimathi was the, the, the young bass player, seventeen year old, eighteen year old with brute force. And then they did that really uh, wonderful album uh, where they did the Yelewa, that song Yelewa go by, you know that that whole Yelewa, the long jam. And uh, later Herbie Mann kind of picked him up. And then they kind of dis- dissolved pretty much. But, but Kimothy, by, by bringing that rock and roll kind of uh, influence, where he had listened to all, all of those uh, influences as well. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was pretty. But I think the main thing about the pyramids was the fact that we were in, in isolation. We were creating something that didn't have a lot of influences. You know, we weren't influenced so much we tried to create so much from the, from the inside. So consequently, I think we, we, the fact that we were in Ohio, you know, and there were no, we weren't in Chicago, we weren't in New York. It allowed us to really have our own sound, you know. And I think that was, was, was uh, my main, my main uh, consideration was creating f- originality. Mm. Talk me through the albums. Lolly Bella. Well, Lolly Bella was a. When you know, that was also around the time that I have to one one more time pay a little homage to Cecil, because Cecil was kind of had withdrawn from the whole club scene, from the whole record. He was completely completely disenchanted with the whole thing. So he started to produce at Yellow Springs, produce his own albums. Uh, Indent was one of the first albums that he did in Yellow Springs, and on that the heels of Indent. We had decided, well, hey, we're not going to wait for anybody to produce our records. We're going to do them ourselves. So Lolly, we came back and we did Lolly Bella was the first one. I, you know, pretty much I financed it myself. It was, you know, in those days, you know, it was, it was very doable. Uh, we pressed it in, at a Cincinnati pressing plant. We recorded it at one of Kimothi's uh, friends in their living room on a four-track recorder. And the thing about the pyramids was it, it was completely free of any commercial or radio influences. We had no idea. We, we, would, we would play a jam for like, you know, as long as we wanted to play it. And we actually put that on the, on the record. Long, like, the, all the first half of Lolly Bella, the first side is just basically one continuous thing that flows into the next. You know? And it's great because side one is Lally Bella, 22 minutes. Side two, Lally Bella continued. <laughs> <laughs> Five minutes, 10. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but then that, we, we, we were even then talking, dealing with more of our work in sweet forms and real sweeping, you know, not, okay, we're going to do a tune. Because as I said, we weren't playing tunes, we weren't playing changes, we were playing feeling, we were playing um, modes. And, uh, but anyway, we recorded uh, Lally Bella. How many would you have pressed of this record? Probably, we were, we were, we were, I think we pressed, uh, I think a thousand. We, pre- we pressed a thousand. We didn't repress it. Mm-hmm. 
by that time, we were starting to play a lot uh, around Ohio. And we did. there was a big hall in uh, Antioch called Kelly Hall, where a lot of concerts were held. So we did several concerts at Kelly Hall, and we were developing the material for King of Kings. And we recorded King of Kings. We went to this place called Chillicothe, Ohio, which had a 16-track. We went from the 4-track to the 16-track. We, 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 we drove down there in one day, got there early. We recorded the whole album in one day and drove back that night to Yellow Springs, which was about almost a four-hour drive. And this place was a very spiritual place because there were all these Indian burial mounds around Chillicothe, Ohio. And so King of Kings was a, it's really a, a beautiful album. It's one of my favorite. Um, but it was recorded in one day. And uh, I think we might have gotten another, like maybe we did 1,500. We got 1,000 and we might have ordered 500 more.
You look good. You were hip. There was yeah. something going on, right? That's, something, that's all our... We came back with all this African stuff. Those boots are from Bogotanga and Tamale and... Yeah, and those pants are from Accra and... Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's a go-gay one-string fiddle. I brought it back. I still have that one-string fiddle. He's holding... Uh, Hecata is holding a Calypso box, which I played still at set on my left hand with my Embiras. I still have that instrument that I'm playing... Uh, and set so yeah oh that was very much we were, we were we were a year from having been in Africa and you couldn't afford color sleeves yet <laughs> no no actually I think we even have you'll even see the, the first one the first pressing was pasted on the label the actually the covers was pasted on a blank blank uh, sleeve you know and they were blue at the top but you hardly ever see those. Wow, okay, that's one for the collectors. Mm-hmm. Right after King of Kings, I graduated from Antioch, and um, we headed out to the West Coast, mostly because... Uh, I had family connection. I had a brother living in San Francisco, but we thought we were on our way to Japan to do another Antioch abroad because Kimathi and Margo were still students. But by the time we got out to uh, Oakland, Margo and myself, we decided that, you know, well, we just wanted to put down a little bit of roots by the time we, we, we had gotten married. And, you know, she wanted to have a family. She wanted to have a child. And so around that time, we began playing set down roots in the Bay Area. Now, Kimathi decided, he well, he still wanted to be foot loose and fancy free and be a student, mm. and he wanted to go back to Antioch and do one more abroad projects, and he went back to Egypt. So he left the band. So um, me and Margo were basically there together, and we had to recreate the pyramids. So we found a really good uh, a local community of musicians, and we added a Hashima Williams on bass, and uh, Augusta, Way, Augusta Collins on drums, and we continued to begin to work while Kimathi was gone. All, all around the Bay Area, some colleges, uh, schools, a lot of schools, we really were working, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of a, a part-time basis. That's, that's all we were doing. But at the same time, the realities, the cruel realities of having to survive began to raise their head. But around that time, uh, not too soon, not, not too long after that, Kimathi returned. So we said, okay, well, Kishima's been here mining the, 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 the pyramids, so what are we going to kick him out and bring Kimathi back in? We decided, well, let's just have two bases. So Kimathi joined, and we had two bases that we played for a long time.
then we recorded Birth Speed Merging in 1976. And that was the first album that we actually had some uh, financial help because at that time my brother was, was, was working and, and was very interested in the music. So he invested a little bit for, so that we could step this up because the uh, studio that we re- recorded in San Francisco was much more together. It was called, we recorded this place called His Master Wheels, His Master's Wheels. So it kind of elevated our whole sonic quality, you know. And around that time, we brought in Kenneth because the original Kunga drummer, M. Chaza, that we had, he was great for live shows, but he didn't have a real good studio sound, you know. And actually, we began to record with M. Chaza, and we, we, re- we realized very soon that the tracks were way too muddy. You know, it just wasn't going to work. So Kenneth just came in and bam, he just, he just really put down that, the, the, that master percussionist, clean licks, clean rhythms, and he added so much in terms of the other instruments that he played, you know, with, our, with the sections that we had, our, our, our percussion and, and uh, little instrument sections that we played with the string sections, he just added so much. Mm. So I think we did about 2,000 of Burst Speed Merging as well, you know. Did it feel like there was a build-up of following and it felt like this was going to be the career, the serious career? Did it feel like the pyramids was going to be something important in your life, more than just playing music? Yeah, I think by that time, you know, it was, it was, it was a really a family band. You know, it was really, we were really getting, you know, we, we had no idea that we'd get out into the real world and it became like we had to make a living. We had no idea about it. We were still relatives. We were still students then. Mm. So none of those uh, financial 
uh, conditions played at all. I was just straight up playing the music mm. for, a, for as a real collective mm. in a family kind of a situation. And uh, it wasn't until we got out to the real world that we the the winds of of that began to buttress the 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 the, the collective a little bit. But um, while we were in this, this cocoon of Yellow Springs, Ohio. It was just, it was a lifestyle. Mm. We were students, but we were also creating this music that we felt we were going to do it. We felt we were going to do it f- together for always, mm. you know, um, to we could, to, until we could try to make a living at it, you know. So with the group that I saw just the other week in sets and the one that's just made this album in Germany, how many of the musicians in the current unit were on birth speed merging? Only... Um, Two were on Birth Speed Merging, uh, myself and Kimathi. Uh, three were on King of Kings, me, Kimathi, and Brady, Hecata. And so right now there's three basic original members. And Kenneth Nash? Kenneth is joined, you know, basically later as a recording. On the recording, we did maybe one live show with him. But, you know, uh, Kenneth, it was like a blessing to have Kenneth return uh, to perform with the Pyramids after, after that amount of time. You know, because he came back, and we haven't really performed with him since 1976. You know what was amazing when I saw you the other day, and I met you all as guys backstage for the first time, was just the pure energy and vibe that you all had as men, as a collective. And when you deal with music and musicians and stuff every day of your life, like I have done concerts radio whatever Mm -hmm. a lot of people become cynical a little bit tainted faded it's a bit sad sometimes a bit like it's not all the glory that you'd imagine it to be if you're Mm -hmm. on the other side of the fence but with you guys it felt like you were some really interesting places in your lives maybe i just caught off a good moment it was a good day (laughs) (laughs) no no i I think that we really work. I think we really work to understand. I mean, having been through all of the wars of, of, of various bands and the ego takes and, and all of this, you get to this place, I think, where, you know, I'm at this place myself, even as a leader of the band, where I realize that in order to have a band, you've got to, you've got, you've got to find a way to have everybody equally shine. You know, you've got to find a way to lead at the same time, make sure that you're leading in a cooperative way, you know, and, 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 and really to, to feel comfortable that you don't have to always get your way. You don't have to always be in charge, you know, that you can really listen to the, the, the musicians around you so that you can work together to create a, a, a product. There was 35 years in between the last record and now. What happened? <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a nutshell okay in a nutshell um, everybody went doing their their prospective lives um, Kimothy and, 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 and Brady or Hecata they kind of got a, a little bit away from music career wise it never left them because they, when, when, you, when you're playing music when you're 15 or 14 you know it never really seriously leaves you you know, so but they had to they had to make a living out there in the, the real world. So they weren't really performing during that 35 years the way that I was performing or maybe the way that Cash, you know, Cash as a being a newer member, the ba- double bass player. So right now, Kimathi is still uh, uh, teaching in a, in a school and um, Brady is kind of retired trying to make a transition in his life. 
But um, uh, Margot taught for many years at Hampshire College because she got a Ph.D. in composition. She taught, but then got disenchanted with the institution. And she began she began working with Indian rights, Native American rights, and was not performing professionally on stage. But myself, I never stopped. I, as soon as the pyramids uh, disbanded in 1977, I formed uh, Idris Akamore and Cultural Odyssey in 1979. So for 33 years, I've had my own nonprofit performing arts company called Cultural Odyssey, which has been going full. I mean, we're like one of the major... Uh, performing arts companies in San Francisco and have been for quite a while. And as I say, specifically with musical theater, but also we do a lot of community work. One project we do is called the Medea Project Theater for Incarcerated Women, where my partner, Odessa Jones, goes into the jails to develop theatrical material with women in the jails who are then taken out of the jail under deputy guard to perform theater shows at a major theater in San Francisco. Currently, we're in South Africa doing the same thing. We've, we've exported this process to South African jails with women, and we're doing what's really the first time in South African history. Uh, uh, they're allowing these women to come out of the jail to a major theater like the Pretoria State Theater in Pretoria, South Africa, to do like four performances. So um, that's, I am completely uh, inundated with the art and performance. When I go back here on Wednesday, when I leave tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, next week I go to the National Black Theater Festival where I curate a whole performance series for solo and, du- and, sol- solo and duet uh, African-American performers at this huge festival where 50 to 75,000 people that come to this small town in Winston-Salem, North Carolina to experience theater for like a seven days nonstop. Brilliant work. Yes. So hopefully there'll be a new album at the moment there's different labels looking at it there's going to be a tour the pyramids are back yes and they mean business <laughs> pyramids are back in force meaning business absolutely <laughs> thank you and very much you, and i want to first i want to put out a shout out to you very much giles because if we hadn't connected with the with the book which is a fabulous book and with the uh, giles uh, peterson diggs america series you know that it was it i have to recognize as they say you got to recognize I'm recognizing. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant.